I am so glad that you guys are here today and to, uh, to get to share God's word with you. My name is Chad Kenser, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And uh, as Dylan said a moment ago, really excited about um, having to shift up our service in order to make room for a host of people confessing Jesus as Lord in the waters of baptism today. And so um, we step toward the scriptures and continuing our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're trying to do sermons on one single sermon that Jesus gave, right? The Sermon on the Mount is a single sermon from Jesus. We've turned it into 14 sermons. So uh, seven weeks leading up to Easter and then now seven weeks heading out of Easter, this is where we're going to be, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been sort of systematically working through it. Jesus has already addressed to us a host of topics, and today he addresses the all-important issue of prayer, the all-important issue of prayer. So I'll never forget when I was a sophomore in high school, spring semester of my sophomore year, sitting in the parking lot after school one day alone, not knowing where to go. It was one day after soccer practice, and uh, as a sophomore in high school, it was like a, a moment of Armageddon for me, right? My grades weren't going really well. My soccer season wasn't going the way I planned for it to go. Things were rough at home. I come from a busted home. I didn't want to go home. A girl I was interested in ended things with me, and it was like Armageddon for a sophomore in high school, right? Like those are like, that's the world sort of caving in on you. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't have a, 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 really a, a history with, with Jesus or with Christianity. Um, but I'm sitting there in my truck, not knowing where to go, and the thought was sort of supplied in my mind. I now know it was the Holy Spirit. Then it was just sort of like, I don't know where that came from. But the thought sort of arrested me. My life was made for God. My, my life was made for God. No like emotions, no fireworks, no warm fuzzies, just sort of like a resolved, like that's what's going on here. And I just sat in the parking lot like a creep, you know, like I don't know where to go, but I'm just arrested by this thought. And a senior in high school pulled back up to the, uh, the parking lot where I was. He was on the soccer team with me. He saw me sitting there and he's like, hey man, is everything okay? He came up to the window, everything okay? And I said to him, yeah, my life was made for God. Like I was just so struck by this thought. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about, but I hope you're okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing fine. So I drove home and I knelt down by my bed because I thought that's the only place you could pray. I didn't know that you could just pray anywhere in any way. I thought you had to be like by your bedside. That's what my grandma taught me to do when I was a kid, you know. It's like, okay, last time I prayed I was kneeling by my bedside. It's probably the place to go. And so I went down and I knelt by my bed when I got home. And I just said, Jesus, I need you to forgive me and I need you to change my life. Amen. And uh, that was almost 20 years ago, and Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has altered my whole sense of what it is to have affections for what matter in this world. Jesus has come into my life and un helped me understand who I am, who he is, what my life is about, what my life was made for, and given me a whole new direction, purpose, and meaning. And so I tell you that story this morning because that's one of those anchor moments in my life. Like, I look back at 16 years old, a rough, busted-up kid. That story has nothing to do with me being a good kid. It has everything to do with God being a good God. I was clumsy. I was fumbling. I was confused. I was mildly depressed. And Jesus changed me. Jesus changed me. 
That moment is an anchor in my life to show me God hears me. And I had two sentences to say to him. I need you to forgive me, and I need you to change my life. And my life has never been the same since. No warm fuzzies, no tears, no fireworks go off. In fact, I expected something to happen. Nothing happened. I thought, well, that's what I've got. I guess I'll go grab a Pop-Tart, right? (laughs) But Jesus changed my life. And that's an anchor moment for me, but I've had several other anchor moments like that in my life where I've called out to God, I've cried out to him, and he's answered. Like, he's done stuff. He's shown up, he's met me, and he's shifted things, right? And so prayer, right, it's a powerful thing. Many of you here today have stories and anchor moments like that in your life where you've called out to God, you've cried out to him, he's showed up, maybe in ways you didn't expect it or ways you didn't ask for, But he's shifted stuff. He's provided. He's changed. He's forgiven. He's altered your life. Prayer is an amazing thing. All sorts of people and all sorts of belief systems pray. Like prayer is not a uniquely Christian thing. But even though those who would reject anything to do with God and religion, they would even say, yeah, I've prayed a time or two. Like prayer is almost sort of an instinct of the human experience. At some points, we come to the end of ourselves and we feel like we've got to cry out to someone or something, right? But for anyone who is seeking to live the true Christian life, to follow Jesus and the God of the Bible, you know that prayer is a powerful and soul-shaping kind of thing. It's soul-shaping. It's, it's soul-lifting. It like, unlocks your perspective on where you are and who God is and what he matters to your life. It's a powerful thing. On the other hand, though, there's these other moments we have to at least be honest about that prayer can also be a really maddening thing, right? Prayer can also be a really maddening thing because on the one hand, we have these anchor moments and stories where we've known the presence of God. It was so overwhelming. He came in to provide where we needed provision. He came to give peace where we had anxiety He came to give forgiveness and direction where we had confusion and we had shame. And God's nearness at some points in our life has been overwhelming. But on the other hand, on the other hand, many of us could testify to moments when we've prayed as hard as we possibly knew how to pray for God to fix a marriage, for God to heal a loved one of their illness, to bring a family member to saving Faith, And after all was said and after all was done, after all of our best prayers have been prayed, the marriage still fell apart. The family member, the loved one who was, we were asking to be healed died in their illness. And those we were asking to come to faith and repentance, it felt like those, heal- those prayers were just hitting the ceiling because they died apart from faith in Jesus. And in those moments, as much as on the powerful side, in the anchor moments, it's soul-shaping and it's powerful. In those moments, we're left with questions, we're left with doubts, we're left with confusion. And so maybe there's some of you here today, even as you're just thinking about prayer, you would say, hey, I'm I'm a kind of person where I want to pray. I want to speak with God, but it's just awkward, and I don't know what to say. It just feels like religious exercise. And it's plastic. And so for you, you just assume not pray because you don't know what to do in prayer. And there's others of you, the thought of prayer is accompanied with such load of shame that you carry with you from your past 
and you're just not sure that God would even want to hear from you. And so the best you can do is, hey, I'll just show up to church on a regular basis. I'll try to make better decisions with my life. I don't want to bother him with prayer because I'm not sure that he'd even want to listen to me. And so you just resign not to think about prayer at all because it just seems easier that way. Right? And then there are those of you who've been around the church scene for a while. You know all about prayer. You've attended prayer meetings, right? You've read books on prayer. You've led Bible studies on prayer. You've heard sermons like this one on prayer. You've read the Lord's Prayer. And your knowledge about prayer has far exceeded your practice. You know way more about prayer than you actually pray. You believe in prayer, but you don't pray, (laughs) right? So here's what I know, stepping toward this really familiar passage of Scripture. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer today, arguably the most famous and most well-known passage of Scripture in the Bible. Even the least churched person or most um, sort of unfamiliar with the Bible kind of person would be able to recite to you portions of the Lord's Prayer, if not the whole thing, right? We're stepping toward this familiar passage on a familiar topic And here's two things I know in the room today. Number one, in this room, four or 500 people, we are all over the map when it comes to our thoughts and our experiences with prayer. We're all over the map. Some of you are coming in today like fired up, great, we're talking about prayer, I've been praying, God's been answering my prayers, let's go, right? This is just more fodder, you know, for you to, like, keep praying. There's others of you who are like, oh, man, a sermon on prayer. Why would I show up today? They might as well preach on money, right? It's the last thing I want to hear about. Where is God, right? We are all over the map on prayer. That's the one thing I know. The second thing I know is this. Jesus has something to say to every single one of us, regardless of where you are And here's what I love about what he's about to say on prayer. His invitation to come to him. The early church used to talk about prayer this way. We want to mass our forces and do violence to God with our requests. (laughs) Third century church father Tertullian would write that about his church. Here's what I know. Jesus has something to say regardless of where you are. And even just that old early church sentiment on prayer His invitation for you to come and badger him is wide open with no strings attached. So I know that we're all over the map in here, and I also know Jesus has something to say to every one of us. And so let's jump into the text, Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 18. So what we're picking up in the text today, a little context, the first thing I want us to see, where we're picking up in the Sermon on the Mount today is the pinprick center of the Sermon on the Mount, So the Sermon on the Mount spans Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount lands at the dead center of this sermon. One of the ways that you can come to interpret Jewish literature, specifically the book of Matthew, a Jewish writer, as he captures the teachings of Jesus for us, in Jewish literature, an interpretive device is always to locate the center. If you want to know what the core of the teaching is, locate the center. Because at the center, everything from the beginning is driving toward the center, and everything after the center is driving out from the center. At the center of the sermon, or at the center of the writing, you can locate the beating heart of what the writer is trying to communicate. 
It's a way to understand, again, everything that's come before it and a way to understand everything that comes after it. And so right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous, most popular, most culture-shaping sermon that Jesus ever preached at the, at the dead center of this thing, when he's talking about street-level discipleship, Jesus unfolds for us how we ought to think about prayer and how we ought to pray. It's as if Jesus is saying this to us with this sermon or this, this teaching on prayer. Everything I've just talked to you about in being the light of the world, everything I've just talked to you about in being salt of the earth, Everything I've just talked to you about in carrying out the demands of righteousness in the kingdom of God, the way you deal with your anger, the way you deal with your sexuality, the way you handle being a truthful person, the way you handle loving your enemies, it's as if Jesus is saying to us, if you're going to carry out all the righteousness of the kingdom, you're not going to do so by just taking the demands of the kingdom. When Jesus has taught us everything he's taught us before this point, you've probably felt, I can't do that. I can't carry that out. That seems really difficult. And Jesus would look at you and go, yeah, it is. And what he's not saying is good luck with all that. He's not saying that. What he's doing with all of the demands of the kingdom, giving you the high identity statements of light of the world, salt of the earth, and a host of blessings through the Beatitudes, what he's doing is he's drawing you more deeply toward himself. It's as if Jesus is saying the only way you're going to carry that out is with a deep communion with God through prayer. The only way you can make sense of righteous demands, the only way you can make sense of blessings, the only way you can make sense of a new identity is to come toward the one who dispenses all of that. It's the only way you can do it. And it's as if to say, coming toward the Lord's prayer the only way you can do this is to have powers through prayer. And then coming out of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is going to talk about things like your possessions and money. He's going to talk about anxiety. He's going to talk about relationships and the way you see people around you. It's as if to say you can't do any of this without prayer. And if you have prayer, the way you see your possessions, the way you handle anxiety, and the way you see the world around you and the people around you is going to be impacted by prayer. So you see the way the Sermon on the Mount is driving toward this moment, and it's all flowing from this moment. And so this teaching on prayer is the beating heart of what Jesus is teaching us in this sermon. It all flows to this point. It all flows from this point. And I want to invite you to consider something for a second. Just consider for a moment whether you're here today and you're a Christian or you're here today and, and you wouldn't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, here's what I know is true for all of us. There's an ache in all of humanity to interact with God on a level that frames up and speaks to your pains, your wounds, and the shame you carry with you. All of humanity, whether you're a Christian or not, has a desire deep down, if we were to give even the most, most atheistic, agnostic person truth serum and to speak honestly, not from what they feel like they have to protect about themselves, but just to speak honestly about their pains, their wounds, and their shame, every person, Christian or not, would say, I want to interact with God. There's got to be something bigger than this. All of us feel that. 
Our ache for God can be seen all around us. It's why you're driven toward. It's why I'm driven toward the things that we are driven toward to cover over pain and anxiety. It's why you reach out for sex. It's why you reach out for money, for power. It's why you reach out for prescription drugs, for food, for drink. You name it. Because you're not sure what will happen if you actually encountered God So instead, we just settle for trivial things down here to numb the angst that we feel to try to convince ourselves that the deepest anxieties that we have aren't as true as we think they are. So we'll reach out to a host of things to numb us because what would happen if I interacted with God? I'm not sure. And yet the thing we all want, the thing that everyone in this room is collectively groaning for is exactly the thing that Jesus is driving us to. Here's the thing I find most fascinating about the fact that the dead center of this sermon is prayer. What you want most to interact with God and what Jesus is driving you toward are not at odds. The thing you want most and what Jesus is driving you toward is one and the same. He's saying, you don't have to fear what might happen if you interact with him because he's drawing you toward interacting with him and he's not there to punch you in the face. He's not there to levy a judgment. He's actually someone altogether different that might just surprise you. Isn't that crazy? This is where the Sermon on the Mount is driving us. The second thing I want us to see today, I'm going to look back at verse 5 because he's telling us who it is that we're praying to. Look back at verse 5. He says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be seen by others. And truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't fire one up, so to speak, like the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them for your Father who Uh, knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Did you notice the repetition that Jesus used in the way he refers to God in this text? Four times, four times in five short verses, he calls God our Father. Five times. In eight times total in the passage we're looking at today, verses five through 18. So five times, or four times in five short verses, and then eight times in 13 short verses. In fact, the only designation that Jesus gives to God at the core of this sermon is Father. He doesn't refer to him as anything else. God, Lord, Almighty, None of those things. The only designation he gives to God at the core of this sermon, how are we to know him, is Father. This is how Jesus wants us to know God. What am I supposed to think about God, Jesus? At what, what's the core of the way I should consider interacting with him? Father. 
Father, 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 Father. If you were to read, again, just on your own, verses 5 through 18, it's like a broken record. This is the point he's trying to address. And here's what's crazy about this, just to step back from this text for a moment. Because maybe you're sitting here going, yeah, I get that, but, but I'm not a religious person. I get that, but like, I've done stuff. Like, I can't, I don't get to know God that way. Here's what's crazy about this. We've said this a host of times through looking at this sermon. When Jesus stepped up to deliver this, it wasn't to church people. It wasn't to the religious elite. He delivered this sermon to the outsiders, the riffraff, those who were on the edges of society, who no one wanted to be around, those whom the religious elite would say, you have nothing to do with God, you're beyond his grace. Those are the very people he steps forward and says, blessed are you for you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, and here's how it's gonna happen. And you can pray to your Father, your Father in heaven. Jesus is totally upending all of our religious preconceived ideas. People who had no business calling God Father get to call him Father with no strings attached. Just hear that for a moment. Now, I know when I mention God as Father, there's all sorts of feelings in the room depending on your experience with your earthly father. For some of you, the thought of the fatherhood of God is unnerving to you. It's confusing to you. It's disorienting. I don't know what to do with that because your images that roll through your mind when you think of a father are not ones that you want to draw toward, right? I know for me, I come from a busted home. My real dad left my mom when she was nine months pregnant, bailed on fatherhood, and my adopted father bailed on me when I was 16. All I've known from fathers is abandonment. Like This is my own grappling with God. But no matter how bad your experience has been with your dad, here's what's true for all of us in the room. There's an ache inside of you for what a father should be. Even if you've only seen a bad example, there's an ache inside of you of what it should be like. This is what Jesus is offering to us. This is what Jesus is offering to us. Listen, if it's challenging for you to think of God as Father, let me just submit this to you. There's only one danger. There's only one danger in thinking of God as Father. And here it is. That you would go on throughout your life thinking too little of him as Father. That's the only danger. You can't possibly outstretch God as Father. All your hopes, all your dreams of what a dad ought to be like, you can't outdream the character of God. You can't put him on a pedestal too high out of fear that he might disappoint you. You, you can't possibly outstretch his character as father. This is why he tells us in verse 5, you don't have to pray for religious show. 
In fact, don't pray for religious show as if to earn approval or a reputation from others. Look at me, how spiritual I am. You don't have to pray like that. He says the same thing in verses 16 through 18 on fasting. Don't use your spirituality to draw attention to yourself in order to feel better about yourself. All of us have met that guy. Or all of us have been that guy, right? The person at a family reunion or the person at a holiday meal. It's time to pray. I'm not sure why we're doing this right now, but it feels like we're supposed to pray, so we pray. And then the guy steps up who never prays, and he prays, and all of a sudden his voice changes, and it gets real whispery and creepy, and it sounds like it never otherwise sounds, and he starts using words and phrases that he never otherwise uses, and you kind of open your eyes because you're like, I think I'm supposed to keep my eyes shut, but why is he, who, why is uncle, why is he praying, like, who is this? It's just such a disorienting moment. It feels so weird, like he's just trying to do it to get attention. And the reason it feels so weird, like he's trying to do it to get attention, is because that's exactly what's happening, right? And you're like, I don't know if I've ever met anyone like that. That's probably you then, right? (laughs) It's probably you. You either know that guy or we've been that guy. I certainly have been that guy. And what Jesus is saying when he says, don't pray to get show, is he saying, don't Clark Griswold me in prayer. Don't do that. Don't Clark Griswold me. This is not Christmas vacation. You don't need to put on a show to earn attention. Why? Because God is your father. You already have his attention. You don't gotta put on a show to get God's attention. You already have his attention. You don't have to wave your arms in order for him to notice you. His son bled out to win you. All he's ever done is notice you. Right? He keeps going in verse 7. He warns us against thinking that we have to pray a certain way. He even says, heap up empty phrases. I love that. Like the language of, I don't know, I better fire one up to the big guy upstairs. He's like, no, actually don't do that. He says, don't heap up empty phrases or talk in a certain way, using certain kinds of words, or praying for a long time, as though that's going to convince God to hear you. He says, no, 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 listen. If he's your father, speaking to the point will do just fine. If he's your father, speaking to the point will do just fine. Very often, my kids, my daughter's in the room today, very often, they'll just scream out, Dad! And they don't have to explain why they screamed it out. They don't have to show me what's happening. Very often, just them calling out, Dad, is enough to turn my head. And I can see very plainly what needs to happen in that moment. Right? If God's your father, to the point, will do. This is the point Jesus is making. But look back at verse 8. He says, don't be like them, talking about the religious performers. Don't be like them. Why? This is, this is so critical. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Everything that Jesus is saying hangs on this statement of God's character. The whole thing hangs right here. 
Cut the ceremonial language. Don't fear being misunderstood. Don't worry about not being able to say it right. How must have feared that? Cut ceremonial language. Don't fear being misunderstood. Don't worry about not being able to say it right. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you ask him. There's never a moment where you're going to surprise or bother God by your requests. Can I just say that again for a moment? There's never a moment Jesus is trying to say where you're going to surprise God or put him out with your requests. Gosh, this person again? Saying that thing again? Your father knows what you need before you ask him. It's crazy, right? Because you think that the more, the more you drive into Jesus, the more religious and ceremonial things get. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, again, just upends that. The more you drive into Jesus, the more simple things get before God. He's your father. He knows what you need. You don't gotta use a lot of words and you don't gotta wave your arms to get his attention. So I wanna ask you a question. What would change about your prayers? Sit in this with me for a second. What would change about your prayers? What would change about your life if you really believed that you didn't have to impress God? What would change about your prayers? And what would change about your life if you really believed that there is nothing left for you to cover over in his presence. One of the greatest fears that all of us have is being found out. Here's the beautiful news of the gospel. You've already been outed. And he gives you this invitation, call me father. Your being outed doesn't get you judged. Your being outed gets you invited. Man, what would change about your prayers if you really believe there's nothing left to cover over or to negotiate? Here's the last way I want to ask the same question. What would change about your prayers? What would change about your life if you really believed that you didn't have to sell God on why he should listen to you? Hey, you don't have to give God a pitch. He sent his son, and his son lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the dead to prove it worked. He's already pitched, and he's in. So here's the way I want to land the sermon today. It's important to note, sometimes you feel like, so should I like, how should I like, how should I come to him? Like, what should I say first to like, Make sure he's on the right side of the bed today, you know? No, 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 no. By definition, prayer is request. Like, that's what prayer is. If you're wondering, like, do I need to warm him up with, like, telling him how awesome he is first? By definition, prayer is request. God's not insecure. He knows he's awesome. And it's not egotistical for God to know that. 
By definition, prayer is request. And so then Jesus leads us. Pray like this. This is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus tells us that we can call his Father our Father, who is in heaven. So he's tender, but he's authoritative, and he's in control. He's in heaven, and it says, hallowed be your name. The request here is, God, would your name and who you are be special to me as it is? Would you be to me who you are? Would you be holy to me? Would you be special to me? Would you make your name holy, right? The next thing he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it's happening in heaven. Jesus is showing us to pray here is the prayer of a disciple. God, would your heart swallow up my heart? Would your desires swallow up my desires? Would your plans swallow up my plans? Would everything that burdens you swallow up everything that burdens me? God, swallow me. My Father, you're the best. Make your name holy and swallow me up with your will, just like it's happening in heaven. The next thing he says, the next petition. So give me today my daily bread and forgive me of my sins as I also forgive those who sinned against me or forgiven my debtors. So this is just acknowledging Before God, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. Most of our lives are spent trying to muster up having what it takes. For what? For fill in the blank. And this is coming before God, the most freeing thing to say is, man, I'm going to need you to provide for all my physical needs today, and I'm going to need you to provide for the shame that I carry for things that I've done And I'm going to need you to give me the kind of grace that I need to forgive those who sinned against me. It's just recognizing I am totally dependent on you, God. You're my father. I need you to swallow me up. But I also need you to provide everything I need because I don't have a thing apart from you. And here's what I love about the help me forgive those who sinned against me line. If you know that you've been forgiven... You can't help but forgive. If you've really been shown grace, you'll show grace. If you don't show grace, you don't know grace. If you can't forgive, you don't know what it is to be forgiven. Just let that sit. And the last thing. He says, and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Okay, so this is the Lord's prayer. Don't heap up empty phrases. Don't wave your hands around and Clark Griswold this thing. You have a father who knows your needs before you ask him. The son of God gives us this really simple prayer. I acknowledge who you are. I want to be swallowed up by you. I need you so bad. And then lastly, he says, God, and don't leave me to myself. Don't lead me into temptation. God, I'm begging you. I will run toward evil as fast as I can unless you keep me. Deliver me from evil.
So as Dylan said at the beginning, for a while now we've been using this prayer in our church to ask God for renewal in this city. We've been trying to come around, verse 10, asking God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. And I'm not saying revival is breaking out in this kind of crazy way that church historians are going to write about this moment in our city. But I am saying Jesus is on the move. Jesus is just, he's picking people off. He's ruining lives for his namesake. That's what Jesus does, man. He collides with us and he messes us up in all the best ways. We start raising our hands when that used to be like a sign of a question. Now it's a sign of praise, you know? Jesus is colliding with people. He's on the move. And today we want to celebrate that. 